Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Wouldn't it be cool if there was a Netflix for finance? Well, there is. It's called Real Vision, and it gives you unprecedented access to some of the most respected names in finance. Watch interviews with legends like Kyle Bass, Jeff Gunlock, Stanley Drunkenmiller, and many, many more. If you want to be part of the Real Vision revolution, visit realvision.com slash WSO. Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Grodnick, and this is Moving Up, a podcast about secrets to success, struggles along the way, and life in general. Today on the pod, Alex Pasala. Alex was an analyst at Merrill, got the job right in the middle of the crisis, and is now a VC in DC. Alex has invested in some awesome companies and has some cool insights on how to get a job that you love. I've said this before, but every Saturday or Sunday when I sit down and think about what I'm going to talk about on this piece of the podcast, I never have any clue. I hear bloggers say the same thing. I do this once a week, but if I had to do it every day, I'm sure it would go the exact same way. Sit down, have no clue, just start, and then a few minutes later, I've got something. Is it the best? Probably not, but it's what's going on inside of my head. I get a bunch of news emails in the morning, and the one that I was reading this morning was talking about President Bush. In 1980, he was being interviewed on CBS after he won the Iowa caucuses, and he beat Reagan. He was asked, how do you feel? And he said, I feel like I've got Mo." And the interviewer said, what? And he said, big Mo, big Mo." Bob Schaefer, the, the guy interviewing him, said, I'm sorry, I don't know what you mean. He said, Mo, 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 momentum. I've got big momentum. Momentum means so much in life. And there's times when you have it and everything seems like it's going your way and you can't be stopped. And then there's times when you don't have it and it feels pretty shitty. Momentum spurs confidence, which spurs more momentum and more confidence. It's a loop. But if you don't have it, then the opposite is true. You don't get a job that you're going for. You feel bad about yourself. You don't do well in the next interview, and then you feel even worse. So how do you turn it around? I think that's one of the things that separates successful people from not. We all have ups and downs, but it's how quickly you can recover from the downs and get back on top. I had a long period of downs after I left banking. My entire life up until that point had been focused on getting that job. And once I got it and didn't like it, it was like, well, now what? I spent a bunch of time feeling bad for myself and not knowing what I should be doing, just spiraling down and down. Feeling bad about my situation, it did nothing for me. It made me feel like crap, didn't do anything for me when I would go out and interview for a job, or didn't help me when I would try to think creatively and come up with a business idea. It just sucked all the good out of me. I thought going to business school would reset things and get me back on track. It definitely did. And where I'm headed now, I still have mornings where I wake up uncertain about things, but I'm definitely on a good path for me. Uh, We're still riding some fundraising momentum with Pay Club. We got a term sheet last week. And that term sheet will help us get more investors and more momentum. 
But how did we get the momentum in the first place? Fuck, it was hard. So much hustling, going to conferences, building a product that people like, sending almost a thousand cold emails, just grinding. So what was the, the key for us? We just won't accept no. We hear a no, and we just keep going 100 miles an hour ahead, kicking down whatever gets in our way. I guess what I'm trying to say here is that it's totally normal to feel bad, but don't drag it on forever. You've got to find a way to stop feeling bad for yourself, turn it around, and get that mo. Hey, Alex. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're in Washington, D.C. You're a uh, venture capital investor. Um, you started your career in investment banking, though. You went to Princeton. So I'd love to hear just the beginning. You know, you went to college. You went to work in banking. Was that always the plan? Uh, not necessarily, although I, I think uh, when I graduated or sorry, when I entered college, that was what I had in mind as um, something that I, I, I was shooting for. I mean, I, whether it's right or wrong, I think a number of people um, you know, in the mid 2000s kind of saw Wall Street as this, this great opportunity because things were going so well. However, by the time I graduated, um, you know, it was kind of the, the lowest of the lows in terms of where the economy was in 08, 09. And so I was fortunate enough to go work for Merrill Lynch right as it was becoming Bank of America Merrill Lynch um, in, in, in an era where it was, it was very difficult to, to get a job uh, on, on Wall Street. But after a short amount of time, I realized that it was, it was um, you know, while I was learning a lot and, and it, was, it, was a, it was a good job, I, I certainly wanted to do something a little more entrepreneurial. So I then left Merrill Lynch to go work for uh, a venture-backed startup, software startup that a classmate of mine from Princeton had been at. Uh, and that's what brought me down here to Washington, D.C. And, and I didn't really know much about that. Uh, you know, Princeton didn't really have a big entrepreneurial push. There's no business school there. You know, they don't really uh, have much exposure. And certainly that's changed now a little bit. But, you know, startups were this kind of uh, area that, that, that very many people didn't, didn't go into. So when I went there, it, it, was, it was great, though, because I got to do a little bit of everything and got to be part of a fast-growing software company. Um, and after a few years of doing that, I decided that I want to put those two things together. On one hand, the kind of fast-growing entrepreneurial early-stage company side, as well as the financial, you know, investing side. And venture capital seemed to be the perfect uh, combination of those two things. Where you know, here at my firm, we we invest in software companies and other early-stage companies that are a lot like the one I used to work at. Cool. So I guess there's a, there's a few things there. The first one is, how'd you get that job at Merrill in the middle of the recession? What set you apart? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I think, you know, I don't know exactly what it was because for, for a lot of that process, there's not much transparency or understanding around how things are going, which is, which is, you know, kind of can be very frustrating for a lot of people. Um, you know, ultimately, I, you know, looked at it as an opportunity to differentiate myself from everyone else who was basically uh, the same thing, which was, you know, uh, a soon-to-be graduate from a from a school that had taken all the same classes, and you know, so I I kind of went into it thinking, 
you know, what, what, what about me can be different? And is that difference even worth it to a potential employer? And so I harped on kind of, a, you know, an athletic background or an ability to manage, you know, individual performance alongside team performance and, and just little things. But to be honest, it's, it's really, it's really difficult to differentiate yourself that much when you're 20 years old and, and all you've really done up to that point has, has been in a, in, in college. So it was really just a, more than anything to answer your question was kind of volume and persistence and brute force to just to make sure that you're on top of every opportunity and you're doing whatever you can to come across in the best light, even if it is a more, a pretty standardized, um, you know, uh, process. So it, it was just persistence, I think more than anything. And, and luckily, you know, uh, being, being really prepared for those interviews and whatnot led to, to an opportunity. Yeah, cool. And that persistence that you talk about, that's what entrepreneurs usually speak of as being the most important trait for them. So were you, you always kind of have this entrepreneurial tilt towards yourself or, or was that developed when you're like, you're working at a big bank and you're like, oh, I, I don't want to work for a big company. I, I see myself as an entrepreneur or were you an entrepreneurial kid and you said, I'm just going to go get some skills and then become an entrepreneur? Yeah, it's funny. I, I, I don't, you know, you hear these cliche stories about the kid with the lemonade stand who knew that they would be an entrepreneur forever. Um, you know, I, I think that's an overly exaggerated or romanticized view of the world. I mean, certainly people do that, but, you know, I, I always had jobs, you know, when I was a little kid doing something. And, and if you call that entrepreneurial, sure. But I wasn't one of these kids who was, you know, oh, you know, from day you know, one, I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur and, and, and blah, 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 blah. I, you know, look, I, I certainly... Um, I certainly had an interest in, in this part of, um, you know, part of finance, you know, working with early, early companies. And I think that was definitely validated uh, from my time at Merrill Lynch, where I said, okay, well, this is the exact opposite of kind of what I'm, I'm more interested in. So how do I, you know, I think like any early stage or, you know, any, um, any young employee, sometimes you can't always get what you want or what's ideal, but what you can do is narrow that down and you can say, okay, well, this isn't great for me, but at least now I know I don't want to work at a place like this, that, or whatever it is. So for me, I always had some spark in there of, you know, entrepreneurial, um, you know, early stage company building type things, but it wasn't until I was at Merrill Lynch, maybe that that was, uh, that was made very clear. Um, and, you know, I was, I was fortunate enough to be able to be in a position where um, I was able to, again, take that financial investing part of my personality and, and, and interest alongside the, you know, being around high growth, uh, early stage companies. Yeah. So Alex, when you left to go to that software company, did they want you because of your investment banking skill set, or they wanted you just because you were a smart, persistent guy? What was it? Uh, I think it's a role in the latter. I mean, to be honest, I think anyone who spends a year or two years at, you know, an, uh, at an investment bank or, you know, or, or somewhere like McKinsey, like a management consulting firm, like certainly you might have some things that you have done that would be applicable. Uh, but really those, a lot of those positions are just a proxy for someone who can work very hard, uh, manage multiple uh, tasks, uh, who, you know, is intelligent, something like that. So I think that was probably what, what they derived from my, you know, my, my long two years or whatever it was at, at Merrill Lynch, I, I think what they were looking for were young, hungry people who could do a little bit of everything, who could, you know, not have to be so structured, who, who could do good, you know, 
thrive in, in a situation where there's a lot of autonomy. And, and that's a lot of what early stage company building is with these startups. I mean, certainly there are areas where you have to be specialized, be it in, you know, engineering and coding or sales or marketing or whatever it is. But in the early days, it's just everyone's, you know, wearing seven hats at once and, and doing a lot of random things and it changes so quickly that it's more uh, important to find the right team as opposed to someone who, you know, has done X, Y, and Z previously because it's unlikely to be um, as applicable. Right. But what you're describing is pretty much the polar opposite of investment banking analyst jobs that are very, very structured and they want you doing a very defined set of uh, skills. But you got that investment banking job because you went to Princeton and you proved yourself there and you did well in the interviews. And then you got this startup job because you worked in investment banking and you proved yourself there. So like everyone's always looking for that kind of that validation point that makes it easier to, to you know, bring you on. Yeah, I, I think that's probably fair. I think there was probably a big risk that this software company took. And by the, the, you know, hiring me from a place like Merrill Lynch, which was, you know, again, to your point, couldn't be more uh, different than, than, than where I was going. However, I think beneath that all, no matter where you are, there are some traits that they had identified or, or you know, should have been, been able to identify that would indicate that, you know, I might have been able to, to do a good job there. So, yeah, it, it's hard sometimes to really crack that code or figure out why people do well or not well in certain situations. But, um, you know, I, I tend to think, uh, you know, if you take someone who is, you know, a, a rock star, you know, A-plus individual and you put them in nearly any situation, they're going to do fine. And you know, I'm not trying to say that's that's the way I describe myself, but when we look for companies to invest in uh, here at, at, at Middleland Capital, it, it's overwhelmingly we're, we're investing in teams over products. You know, it's really the team and the individuals, the people that, that will, that will decide the success. And I think, um, I think that's something that that's pretty applicable across any type of situation. Yeah. Okay. So I like that. And that's something we always hear about on this podcast, but so you're at this software company now and you say, okay, this is cool. I'm an, I'm an early stage guy now. Um, but I want to combine my two skill sets. So you thought, I'll go get a job at a VC fund. I'll start my own VC fund. Like, what was your? How were you thinking about it? Yeah, no, it definitely wasn't to start my own VC fund. Uh, I, I don't even know. How, I, at the time, I don't even know what that would have entailed. I mean, I, I had some exposure to venture capital by being at a startup that raised money from other venture capital firms. And granted, I wasn't like the CEO of the software company. I wasn't the one negotiating or, or being really in the room all the time with these VCs, but it was a huge piece of our business. I mean, we went from being a company with, you know, a couple dozen people, you know, and then all of a sudden we, we grew like crazy, you know, all, um, you know, all because this, this venture fund based up in Boston, you know, invested, you know, over $10 million into our company. And overnight, it just became, you know, the trajectory got ramped up so quickly. And so I saw what that impact was on a business. Um, and so when I said, okay, I, I want to understand what that's like more being on the other side of the table, you know, it, it made sense to go work at a venture capital fund to, to, to learn what that, what that entailed. And, and I had an idea of what it was, but you know, just very little exposure. Um, and so I talked to all types of venture capital funds, you know, ones that have been around for 30 years and ones that had just started, some that were, 
you know, 20, 30 people and some that were, you know, two, three people as some that were general sin approach and will look at any type of investment and some that were super duper specific to, you know, a certain sector or something like that. And I really tried to get a good cross section of what was out there, what the roles were and, and understand what was a good fit for me. And then ultimately I, you know, took a position at a, at a firm that I thought kind of checked all the boxes for what I was looking for. Sure. So it sounds like you had the beginnings of kind of a network in the, the venture capital industry. And so you started, you know, having conversations with the people that invested in your company saying, you know, can we grab a coffee? I'm interested in your, what you do, or I, I want to come work here. Do you know anyone that I can talk to? Is that kind of how it worked? Like how, how'd you go about that process? Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't really have a big network um, within the venture capital community. I mean, there were some people, you know, through like an alumni database that I could hit up, but these were complete strangers for the most part. I, I think, you know, w- but with what few conversations or people in my network I did have, I made sure that even if there wasn't an opportunity with that person, that I wouldn't ever have any conversation, you know, not lead to something else. And so by that, I mean, if I were talking to someone, and I say, hey, I'm really interested, you know, and they say, oh, look, we're not, we're not hiring people. I say, okay, well, based on my skill set and what, what I've been exposed to, are there other people that you can introduce me to that, that might be better fits? Or is there something that I could be doing to kind of advance myself, you know, in, in what I'm looking for? And so I used every single conversation with every single person, no matter what, as, you know, this is going to get me closer to my goal, which is an offer at a venture capital firm that I'd want to work at. And eventually, you know, what was five conversations turned into another, you know, 15, which turned into another, you know, whatever the, the, the math is here that the, and it probably was 50 to a hundred conversations and coffees and drinks and all this kind of stuff that I had to have with people, sometimes on the phone, sometimes in person, you know, sometimes uh, it was five minutes, literally just five minutes. And sometimes it, I could talk to someone for two hours and it was completely dependent on their schedule, their personality, their interest, uh, and I couldn't control those things, but what I could control is that every single conversation was uh, was advancing my efforts. And so it was, again, it was, it was just kind of a volume game, a numbers game and brute force and persistence to make sure that um, that I was getting out there in front of the right people. Even if the person I was talking to right now wasn't perfect, they might know the perfect person who is. And so I was very um, methodical about it and, and, and approached it in that way. Right. Just like anything else in life. If you're going to want something, this is how you have to do it. It's numbers and persistence and multiple emails and following up and asking for advice and asking if they can introduce you to somebody else. So can we kind of retrace where this job opportunity came from? Yeah, and that's the nature of venture capital. That's the other reason I did it. I mean, unlike investment banking, where every single analyst uh, program for every single investment bank recruits at the exact same time with the pretty much identical application and process, right? Like when I was applying for a job out of school, it was very obvious what I had to be doing, you know, and, and what was expected of me and what the procedure would be. And like I said earlier in this interview, that's why it was really hard for me to figure out like, well, how do I even differentiate if everyone kind of looks like a kind of smart, kind of, you know, involved person that has activities on the resume. Like it was really hard to differentiate. Where in venture capital, um, less, uh, probably only 10 or 20% of the jobs that are even available are ever even put out into the, 
you know, kind of job listings because it's the nature of the industry, right? These venture firms are very small, so they hire much more for fit as opposed to what have you done late, you know, more recently. And, and it's very relationship driven, everything about venture capital, how you find companies and how you invest in them and how you co-invest and how you sell companies. So I knew that it was not going to be easy as easy as logging onto a job posting website uh, and saying, okay, here's the 50 venture capital jobs. Let me just work them through a funnel. It was much more about getting out there uh, and having these conversations and sometimes not really knowing, you know, what the best way was, but, but just, just doing something to, to, to get yourself in that, in that network. Uh, ultimately, the, to answer your question, the job that I ended up taking was with a firm in Washington, D.C. called Middleland Capital. Um, and, it, you know, if I had to trace how this happened, I guess I'd say so a conversation I had with someone, uh, a friend of mine led to an introduction to another individual who at the time was about to be working with Middleland Capital, but also, you know, thinking about doing something else. And so he brought me in and then that led to another conversation with one of the the, the the guys here and that led to a conversation with another person who works here and then ultimately with that whole group of people you know multiple conversations with finally ended in an offer um and and the reason i was so interested in working with these individuals was because Middleland capital is a is a very small firm so you know there's just three or four of us here total um but they but they invest in quite a variety of things a very open-ended generalist fund. So for me, breaking into the industry is really important to get a lot of exposure to a lot of different types of investments uh, because my exposure was just, you know, at the one software company I had worked at. So that was what was really compelling to me. But it was because it was such a small firm, it required a number of conversations with everyone, you know, both individually and then collectively because they, they really had to be certain if they were going to increase their workforce by 33 percent, you know, by adding just one employee, that that the cultural and, and, and personality fit had to be had to be good. So it was a much longer process than I think anyone would have liked, but it was because they wanted to be thorough. Cool. Okay. I really, I really like that. That makes great sense. And, you know, people go to investment, they take their first job in investment banking and they want to be generalists or they take their second job at a private equity fund and they want to be journalists because you, you want to keep as many windows open as possible, or you really just don't know what you like or what your specialty you want to be yet. So fine. You're, you were attracted to here cause like they're investing in lots of different types of businesses and has there, has it stayed like that or has there been like you've moved towards a specific set of companies or how has that worked? Yeah. I mean, look, I, I think it's important to cast a wide net with things when you don't know any better, but over time you want to get really good at something because no one wants to be a jack of all trades and master of none. Um, and so I took the approach of going wide, you know, with a generalist firm because I said, well, how, how would I know what I really want to do and commit, you know, the rest of my career to, as opposed to just interviewing with only companies that did fintech investing or, you know, enterprise software investing or consumer investing or whatever these types of sub verticals are of venture capital. So, you know, when I joined Middleland, it was, here's all these different types of things we're doing. However, over the last five, six years that I've been here, certainly there've been areas where we've gained core expertise and, and I've personally specialized in, in areas because that's, that's ultimately what will, will, diff, will make you a better investor over time is, is really, um, you know, doubling down on the things you know well. So yeah, certainly it's evolved, you know, individually from a generalist approach to something more specialized, but still as a firm, you know, we're still very generalist because if each of us is specialized in one or two areas, you know, combined, that, that adds up to a pretty, pretty wide 
variety of things that we'd invest to. So as a firm, you need to be generalist, but as an individual over time, I think you need to get more specialized or, or really get a, a skill set that, um, you know, can, can be differentiated that way. Um, you know, you have the ability to know something that others don't when it comes to looking at a certain type of investment. Right. Okay. So Alex, you know, your job, it's a super enviable spot. Like a lot of people would want it. There's a lot of cool attributes of it. I mean, you're speaking with founders that are trying to change the world and you've got money and you get to pick where you place those bets and who you're betting on. And that's, that's cool. Is there anything that you don't like about the job? Yeah, look, I think every job has has its ups and its downs. I think, um, you know, I'll give you two types of answers. I'll give you one where something that's a positive is also a negative, and then one thing that's just negative. You know, before I said that, um, you know, it's it's a small firm, and because of that, you know, when you come in, you you have a lot of responsibility, and 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 you kind of have to do everything because because it's it's so small, and there's not all that infrastructure there. So that for me, that was great because I wanted to learn. Uh, and I want to have exposure to every part of the venture capital, um, you know, process, which might be sourcing and due diligence and sitting on boards and selling companies, like really full spectrum. And that was a great positive because that's that's how I learned very very quickly, you know, the entire uh, gamut of, of what a venture capital does. However, when it comes to you know managing workloads and 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 everything that's also a, a huge challenge because we I don't have a team of analysts and principal you know people below me that that can work on things so when there's a lot of work that we need to get done in a short amount of time you know it's just me whereas you know investment banking there was like there was me and then there's associate then there was you know the director like there's all these levels of people that were able to manage things um so yeah the, the downside of working at a small fund is that you kind of have to do everything and if 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 a lot has to be done, you know, there's not other people that you can even pass it off to or, or work with on it. Um, aside from things like that, I mean, you know, in my position, we we have this constant balance around how do we how do we think about our our own marketing as a firm, right? I think there are some very large venture capital funds out there that have, that are kind of name brand institutions like Sequoia and Kleiner Perkins and Union Square Ventures and uh, you know, Andreessen Horowitz, whatever it is, right? And these are name brand funds. And, and a large part of that is because of their success in the past. But, you know, a good chunk of it is also because they actively think about what is our brand? What do we want to be known for? And how do we market that? And how do we get our message out there, right? That's something that someone, you know, is literally tasked with doing internally there. But then everyone collectively has to be constantly doing that for them. As a small firm, you know, we, we don't really do that, right? We don't do that enough, at least, you know, we don't really think about that. So, you know, when we meet a lot of entrepreneurs that we're, you know, trying to in, in, in evaluate for an investment, a good chunk of them have never even heard of middle land capital before. Um, and, and that's okay, because it's, it's by design to an extent, but it's also a huge challenge, because it's certainly a lot easier to do this job when everyone knows who you are, and they're thinking of you constantly, and they're saying, Oh, I want to, I want to go pitch middle land capital, right? And so while we might have just as good performance and, and, and everything else as some of those other firms, you know, if we're not actively um, making a concerted effort to market ourselves and to, to build our brand, it becomes a little harder to do our job in many ways. So that's, that's one area that, you know, it's just, it just kind of is what it is when you're at a small firm and you don't have those resources or the time, you know, to, to do those types of things. It, it becomes a challenge, and I'm, I'm sure it would be there would be some, some easier parts of this job if I worked at a much bigger firm like that. But like I said, every job has its 
positives and negatives. So, um, you know, this is overwhelmingly the, the, the right situation for me. Yeah. And that's just, you're just kind of talking about the structure of a VC fund versus the structure of a bank. Banks have tons of junior staff, a lot of people to do busy work and crank out presentations and models and all that stuff. And venture capital firms don't like, I I mean, I don't know the ratio, but I would assume like, I mean, some do, right. I I think the point is like not comparing apples to orange, but even, even within venture capital, right. There are bigger venture capital funds that have, you know, analysts and associates and VPs and principals and partners and general partners, right. There, there is a hierarchy within venture capital funds that are large venture capital funds. Um, But, you know, where we are, it's it's super flat. There's just three or four of us, you know, and um, you, you don't have that. So yes, you know, I, again, I, I, I think it'd be impossible for us to operate the way we do while having uh, also, you know, that hierarchy. So you got to take the good with the bad. But it, it, it certainly is frustrating sometimes. I would certainly love to just, you know, with all the modeling and presentations that we have to do from time to time, it would be great to throw that to someone else who can churn those out. But, sure. you know, um, it's, yeah. it is what it is. Cool. Okay, Alex, well, I'll get you out of here on this. The last question is, is always advice, you know, advice, if you were starting your career over, or if you know, you had a son or daughter, and you're telling them, they're about to graduate school, like, has there been anything in your career now that you can look back on and say, I would totally do this again, or I would definitely stay away from doing something like that? Yeah, certainly. I mean, with hindsight, there, you know, there's, there's, there are a ton of things I wish I had done differently. Um, but, but that being said, I, I think my general advice to anyone is that you know, no one, um, you know, no one's going to be a bigger, no one's going to care more about your future than you are. And, and so, I think a lot of times, I thought if if I had something I wanted, and, and part of it was in someone else's hands, like it would just be taken care of. And what you realize is that. Um, you know, that, that's not always the case and not that people will do that, you know, on purpose. It's just that, um, you know, you, you have to be the one who is driving the train when it comes to, to getting what you want. And, and, and you need to be thinking about every single thing you can be doing to make sure you get what you want. Otherwise, no one, it's never just going to be magically plopped in your lap. Nice, nice and easy. And it might seem like some people have that sometimes, or there have been times where parts of it might seem like that, but for the most part, um, it's, it's that persistence and it's that constant, um, you know, kind of self-realization or taking a step back and thinking about, okay, and what I doing is what I'm doing now kind of advancing me towards my goals or not. And if, if not, like, how do I rectify that? How do I change that? And maybe you don't have to have it all figured out with one big move, right? You take multiple steps to get where you want, but if you're not moving forward, you know, you're moving backwards. So I, my advice to people is to constantly be thinking about that while also not being short-sighted and thinking, okay, well, I've done, you know, this for a year or two years now. I obviously know everything about it. On to the next thing. I, I think our generation, you know, kind of millennials and whatnot are, are, are very short-sighted and impatient by, by nature. And, and sometimes that leads to people who think they, they should be doing something there, you know, but well above their pay grade already. So I think getting that perspective while also maintaining, you know, kind of that, that assertive nature to, to advance yourself constantly is, is a constant balance, but it's one that I wish I had done a better job of personally. And, and I, I kind of see that in other people sometimes who are early in their career with, um, with it. So that's, that's general my advice to anyone. Cool. Well, Alex, thanks so much for making the title of this episode so simple. If you're not moving forward, you're moving backwards. Um, but this was a really, this was a, yeah, this was a fun conversation. Thanks so much for doing it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening today. 
anything you can do to help spread the word about this podcast, I really appreciate it. We'll be back next week with another episode. Thanks.